0: AppsFlyer presents Winning in the Nordics with Annalina. Welcome to Winning in the Nordics. I'm your host, Annalina, and I'll meet some of the most interesting marketers, investors, and app developers across the region to learn from their success stories. I'm the founder of Aim4, your partner for digital marketing and growth, and this podcast is a collaboration with AppsFlyer. AppsFlyer provides mobile marketers with the technology they need to grow their apps and create exceptional user experiences. I'm here today with Mishka Katkov. He's the CEO and founder of Savage Game Studios. He's a games professional with over a decade of experience in building free-to-play games and leading games teams and studios. Mishka is also the founder of the popular Deconstructor of Fun blog, newsletter and podcast, so welcome Mishka!
1: Thank you so much. I'm-
0: Did I miss something in that uh, introduction of you?
1: No, no, just decades of trying to make good game. Yeah. I mean, I have some, but but it's still many more failures than successes. So we're still at it.
0: Interesting. And I think that is a bit what we're going to focus on today, mm-hmm. like when to go and when to let go.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So to <laughs> kind of get started on that, can you tell me about some game ideas that you had in the past and like, you know, something that really got you going and, and why?
1: Well, the, gaming is, is um, it's an interesting line of business or an industry because I would argue that almost everybody who works in games or especially is a new game development is a gamer of a sort. So meaning that they have played games and they want to be making games because like, if you don't want to be doing this, there's no point. So anyways, uh, because of that, we, we've all played all kinds of games and we always have a ton of ideas of the games that we would like to make. So... The limitation is never the idea. We have too many ideas, and most of them are really bad. And that's <laughs> that's that's really uh, that's really the case. But you would be you'd be amazed how similar our ideas are, no matter where we come from, because of our background of playing essentially the same games of the last thirty years. So the, those are kind of like the reference points, and then our the ideas are usually derived of something that we've played.
0: Yeah. Okay. So so like. You say that they are very similar. Like, what is the typical mm-hmm. game idea? Like, what does it contain of?
1: Ah, uh, well, I don't know if there's a. Th- the typical idea is something is is extremely niche that doesn't have market potential and is almost the same that the game that you're playing currently. So that's the typical game idea, and that's why they're mostly a failures. So, uh, but but that's not that's the ideation is really not the problem because. Um, how do how I put it? So our audience is not very familiar for for uh, in terms of game development. Game development is software development at, you know, just most complicated software development with live operations uh, with incredible amount of analytics. But in the beginning it of course starts with an idea and and usually uh, it depends on different types of studios, but usually the first step of game development is uh, an ideation phase. So that means, During this time, we generate a lot of ideas and what we try to do in an idea is that we create an outline that covers the sort of basics of the game mechanics, who the game is for, what are the games it competes against and why is it a game that fits the company where I'm at, where the person is working for and in order to pass the sort of ideation phase. they're they're usually quite short sometimes a studio might take a week to come up with a bunch of ideas and everybody's ideating together Uh, usually it passes the ideation is that most of the people especially the leadership considers that there is merits to this idea and then that team or that idea goes into what we call a concept validation stage and that is a little bit longer and much more methodical so so ideas you know there there's never a bottleneck and what i've noticed like throughout these years people who are just entering the games industry. Sometimes they don't wanna tell us their ideas and you know we don't wanna be condescending with like, listen, there's no idea that you have that we don't have. <laughs> That's the fact that the, the only problem is execution. So, so don't worry about the ideas. We got some.
0: Yeah. Two things uh, remind me since I'm not in the game industry, mm-hmm. but like the first one I come to think about this, the famous uh, Ford comment, like if I would have asked people what they needed, they would have said mm-hmm. a faster horse and, yes. and it's like, it's not really that that we need to do. And uh, the mm-hmm. second one uh, I come to think about is that it's the same in like starting companies that no one want to tell you what your idea is because uh, someone might steal it, but people are lazy. Mm-hmm. So they don't do that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's a, well, I would, how would I put it, there's not that many revolutionary i games that that would just change totally uh, how we perceive them. Like, of course, Pokemon go out of the recent ones have been the, the sort of a unique, but even that game has been sort of a lightning in the bottle because nothing like that has worked. So it was kind of combination of technology and the IP and the execution and everything. But most of the ideas are iterative. So just like any innovation, it's based on the previous version of something and then they've either fixed or added something or made it more marketable and through that yeah, it grows. But, but quite often, to be honest, like the idea is, is like this game plus that games plus that game is our game. That is in simplicity the ideas. This game, that game, with this theme. Let's go.
0: Yeah, got it. But to to kind of grasp its uh, ideation phase a bit, like, do you do you do anything to get people in the mode of like creating good game ideas, or is it more like people all have them all the time? So like this phase is more writing everything down.
1: Yeah, so th- that's a very good question. The, the thing is, game studios are very um, cross disciplinary. We have artists, we have uh, various kinds of programmers. We have designers, we have a product manager, we have analysts, we have all kinds of people and, and there's no common way of working. And, and if you work in cross-disciplinary teams, you will notice that the problem solving is incredibly different with different disciplines. Uh, engineers to solve problems by focusing on the most difficult aspect first. And they also try to find the most simplistic way to solve that one difficult problem. And it's quite hard to communicate all uh, quite often to others, then there's uh, designers who focus on the uh, the small thing, the absolute core of of everything, the sort of a, that makes it feel or look in a certain, or usually feel a certain way, and they focus around it. Then you have artists that try to uh, showcase it with a with a very unique art style, like like the focus of everything is this. And then you have business people that we have in the studios, and these people are usually the ones that win all the ideation phases because. They look at the market and they're very derivative and their audience, the decision makers, are also the people who are with a business background. So they also want verification, not like these nuances. So that's quite often what happens in studios and perhaps that's why our, our industry is very iterative.
0: Yeah, interesting. Actually, I was talking to a guy who produced songs, and what they Mm -hmm. did was they took all these people, like the different Mm -hmm. types of people, and they he put them in a room, and they had it was a like two or three day camp, and they had to produce a song in the morning and a song in the afternoon. Like, have you ever tried Mm -hmm. to do that? Put everybody in one room, and yeah, yeah.
1: so so those are called game jams. We do those quite often. So okay, uh, game jam is like it's essentially making a game in a week or in even a couple of days, and. And that, that is the type of ideation phase where you bring different type of people together, different disciplines, and, and they work really hard to make a quick prototype. So that's quite typical approach as well. Personally, in, in, in a position of studio leadership, I tend to look at ideas in a, how do I put it, like more of like a Hollywood aspect. And what I mean by that, like a screenwriter aspect is, if an idea has legs, that means a lot of people will gravitate towards that and want to work on that specific idea. So that's how I tend to look at it, and that's why I want to kind of create this sort of a wildfire of of ideas. And, And what you will notice is that there's a lot of people who will be pitching an idea alone, and that usually, I'm sorry, means that that's not a good idea because it didn't get anybody else excited to work on that idea. And then you will have one or two, usually one, that kind of throughout the ideation week pulls everybody together. Because it's a good idea. Because everybody wants to work on it, and you quite often the person working on it is also very charismatic. But in the end, you want to start a new game development, so you're looking for a champion for an idea, an idea that can be championed. So it's not always about just the good. You also have to look at the uh, intangible aspect of it. As
0: well. Interesting. So uh, because uh, my second question was going to be like, which of these mm-hmm. ideas do you actually decide on and uh, actually go for? Because I, I can imagine this that even though you have one of those game jams and there is this uh, idea that everybody's gravitating towards, but it's still not good enough to kind of create, like uh, when do you decide to actually build something and, and when do you just let it go?
1: Yeah. So, so with the ideation phase, you just look for good ideas that you can build upon and you can test them. The real work starts with the concept validation phase. So essentially an idea turns into a concept and a concept is a sort of a game vision with very defined game mechanics, with very clear audience. Uh, There's art exploration done with different avenues. Um, You have a very sort of a detailed plan that you can turn this into a prototype or a first playable. And the exit criteria for this sort of a a concept validation phase usually lasts, you know, between month to two, even three months. You essentially exit with an evaluated market appeal uh, and as well as very Feasible delivery and all of this uh, delivery, so feasible roadmap that that talks about how we deliver actually this game and everything is based on research and tests. So we, so we turn from the sort of a quick ideation phase, which everybody thinks games industry is, uh, that lasts for a glimpse. And then we go back into just being very analytical, very market-driven. We test our marketability early. We test with different themes. And we might notice that the uh, original idea that had steampunk in it turns out that steampunk is a very niche and then it turns into something else like a modern combat or or you know like you know romans and vikings and barbarians and that kind of stuff more generic and dragons and and stuff like that so so we 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 turn ideas into concepts and we validate those concepts before starting to invest into uh, more detailed prototypes etc
0: yeah okay So kind of just to dig a bit more into this, can you tell me like a story on, you know, one of the ideas you had that you really believed Mm -hmm. in, but that that it turned Mm -hmm. out in the concept validation that it wasn't good enough or like the vice versa?
1: Well, yeah, those. So I would, I have many examples where we didn't do concept validation at all. And we went from an idea into just straight up into pre-production. And those turn out to be, you know, mistakes worth millions because, what happens is you end up building something and you end up putting it into a market and you haven't validated that actually this type of a setting of sci-fi is not very interested for a larger player base. So your CPIs are gonna be higher and through that you're not able to acquire players and through that you're not able to scale the game and through that it dies. And you've just wasted a year and a half and a lot of money on software development. But um, but with the concept validation, like the best way to approach it is not to be married with everything so we approach it in a way that hey we have an idea and it's a very you know like a cyberpunk type of a shooter and then we take it into a testing and then and then what happens in the testing phase is that when we test it against dystopian uh future and um sort of a, a crime world and so forth with, with different marketing tests or run on meta or instagram or others then then you'll notice that that while the original idea might have legs when you do audience research. Uh, the the theme that you were originally thinking about is actually not very good. The CPIs are too high. The IPM is too low. So you're you just you know we we run ABC ABCD tests at the same time and and just choose the right setting through that. So you know the the thing is just don't get married to a to a specific theme or art style
0: is there anything in particular you can uh, share about the concept validation phase that you think that you could bring on to other industries that aren't gaming
1: yeah i mean uh, the, the 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 well the, the two important parts of concept validation phase well three one is market research we're very detailed we have uh, taxonomies we look at um, games that are direct competitors indirect competitors it's it's a lot of market research so uh, i'm sure any industry is doing it, and if they're not, they're probably not succeeding, um, unless it's luck. The second part that we do is is very detailed audience research. So uh, by audience research, the weakest one is like, oh, Sally from Ohio, kind of like creating these fake personas and and making games for 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 these fake personas. But we actually do do use a lot of tools, a lot of a lot of player research tools where we go deeper and understand. Beyond demographics, we understand the different traits, like is altruism important for these type of players? Because if it is, then we can uh, skew our marketing material to showing that you're saving somebody uh, instead of dominating others and this kind of stuff. So so this helps us to, to position our games in a correct way. It also helps us to understand the players that are playing the competitor game and understand what they're missing because we know what the competition is. So let's look at the audience of these games and is the game that they're playing truly answering to their needs? And there might be then segments, uh, supposedly large segments that are actually not getting everything they want from this game or these type of games. And through that, we, we create a hypothesis that there's market opportunity. And then once we create the market opportunity, we start testing. So even before having the game, before having the prototype, we just we use the typical approach of creating fake app stores and then. Uh, a lot of different creatives with uh, similar positioning, but different art styles, different settings, and that we test, 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 test multiple iterations until we can uh, validate that our CPI can go low enough and we are able to build a business case around it. So this this is kind of like the groundwork that we do. And it's really important because it's it's easy to skip it. It's easy. It's easy to say build it and they will come. But that's not how it works. Not not anymore in, in a very mature. Competitive, you know, fifty billion dollar a year business, which is uh, games in, in Western markets. Uh, so market research, player research, and testing.
0: Got it. Okay. Yeah.
1: So understanding the audience is incredibly important to create the hypothesis because we have also worked previously where we didn't understand, we didn't, didn't focus on the players that much. We just focused on the market and the testing. But the the, the player understanding is kind of like the next level. It's, it's something that that the other uh, top companies are doing now more and more. Because that, that allows us to create a hypothesis, not only based on, hey, these games are making this much money. And if we come in, we can get 20% out of the market mm. and then testing some ideas. But but when you're able to say, hey, there's a big market and we've identified that this percentage of the market is not seeing their needs met. They want something different. They want something, something else. And then we test that hypothesis through marketing uh, by... By creating fake apps, fake apps and fake app stores and and, and the creatives that are advertising this missing link. And then that element generates the early validation, then we can move forward. So market, audience, and then
0: testing. Cool. So basically in the case where you did concept validation and you decided to Mm -hmm. go on to prototyping, uh, do you have mm-hmm. some statistics or anything like that that you can share that was like okay but these three were the findings in these uh, three areas that made us move on to prototyping
1: i don't know if statistics or i have cpi so so we we end up looking at cpi so we we see that we can drop the cpi to 20% from the original hypothesis by just understanding better and better the audience and um and redoing the tests and during this early validation phase you know, just significant drops in, in, in the CPI, but is, is our proof of concept that, that we are on the right track. And at the same time, we're, we're advertising to a big enough audience in tier one countries. And that is usually the, uh, the sort of foundation of a business case.
0: So let's move on to prototyping. Tell me a bit about that phase.
1: Yeah. So, you know, prototyping is, is, is kind of validating the core mechanics of the game. It tends to show the unique selling point or the absolute core... Concept of the game and that is tested with real players. At the same time, like art style can be validated at this point, but it doesn't have to be really exactly tested because the, the prototype doesn't have to have the the assets. Uh, the way we test the uh, the prototype is again using another testing tool. So uh, we have um, a tool called Playtest Cloud, but there's there's different type of tools here. Uh, essentially, the build goes out to players around the world, um, not not just players actually. They're very detailed so usually these platforms can have up to a million players and we choose them based on the demographics that we're looking for so because we understand our audience now we're targeting that audience and we're giving a few tens of them our game and uh, we look at this sort of a net promoter score about 100 players is usually good enough and we might run the test in a batch of 10 so we create an early prototype it's a little bit of a playable it might be 15 minutes 20 minutes of playable uh we target it with our core players they get like first 10, get to play it a little bit. And usually there's tremendous amount of challenges in that game. They don't understand this. They don't understand that. This looks bad. That looks bad. Then the next 10 play and then the next 10 play. And usually there's a week or two in between. And then we improve the build every two weeks, every two weeks, every two weeks. And at some point, uh, and, and through that, the, the NPS is, keeps on increasing. So it's very data-driven development, even in prototyping phase. And then you're able to exit that phase when the uh, NPS has increased enough. Uh, and players are actually enjoying playing your early prototype of a game. So yeah, it's uh, it might be boring to hear for, for people that, that game development is very data
0: driven. No, I love it. I'm like, how can I copy <laughs> this to something else? <laughs> yeah. 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 But, but what I'm wondering about this kind of the, um, the, the funnel steps here, because I, I can imagine, mm-hmm. uh, because we've talked here about ideation to prototyping, like on a hundred ideas, how many pass, uh, through prototyping.
1: It, it really, really depends on different companies. So there are companies with big franchises and they don't, they don't do much prototyping at all They They essentially say that, Hey, we have, I don't know, let's see battlefield that's uh, made out of Stockholm. So, so yeah, battlefield IP, you don't need any kind of testing. You're making the next battlefield. So they probably just choose. What is the setting? Is it modern combat? Is it world war two, world war one, uh, is it the future combat? Like whatever it is for, for this battlefield now. And they kind of just staff up the team and go till the end, spend 70 to 150 million building that game. <laughs> and oh my uh, God. expect to get billion back. Yeah, probably closer to 150 million. But, but, um, but, then, but then there are studios that are very creative. And in those type of studios, they might even have a total groups that are just working on different ideas. And in those groups, they might work through this sort of a model where best ideas move forward just as people join those ideas. So there's like this internal rivalry of you can change your teams to whatever, and we have this creative chaos. It, it's all different. Like every company is different in how they green light games. I've, I have to sadly say that I've, I've worked at multiple different companies. I've visited countless studios. Nobody has the same process. Yeah. And every company keeps changing their own process as well, even the best ones. So it's a chaos. Nobody knows how to make a good game. That's the fact.
0: Oh my God. Okay. But then I want you to to change hats because I know that you're an investor as Mm -hmm. well. So if that's the case, like how do you decide on which companies or game studios or games to invest in, if that's the case that nobody knows? Yeah. Well,
1: investors, investors are kind of boring because they, because they don't know either, because there is no, no, no thing, no right way. The way investors invest is that they invest into teams. They always say, well, I invest into the best team. Exactly. Because you don't know how to make a good game. So you just say, I'm I'm not going to even listen to the game that you're making. I'm just going to invest in the team. Because even if you're making something wrong, you'll learn and you'll pivot into something that will eventually likely succeed. So that's how investors work. And the reason why they say they invest into teams rather than in products is because they don't know how to make a good game. Nobody knows.
0: No, no. Oh, that's, that's true, but I, I still think that, okay, nobody knows how to make a good uh, game. Mm-hmm. How do you know that the team is good?
1: Um, well, it's pretty boring, you just look at the, uh, the previous previous success of the team, the experience of the team, how long have they been working together as a team, how good of a pool they have, where are they located, those are, those are basically the elements. So if you have a good team, that means they are usually in, in some gaming hub in the world, I know now a lot of companies are doing fully remote, but I'm not a big believer in that. The, usually the best teams are located in, in one of these cities where where there's a contact to different talent. And they're coming from a company where they will most likely be able to get more people to, to leave the company where they used to work and join them. So so you're essentially investing into that, into, into their ability to scale at where in, where they
0: are. Yeah, okay. I'm 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 thinking here about like investing in in startups that are not games, and I think like mm-hmm. one of the things there is that many times the team hasn't been working so long together, and they haven't maybe been running. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they have track records, but it doesn't necessarily come from the same area that they are now trying to disrupt or something. Uh, is it always the case in gaming that they have gaming experience? Or
1: so now you're talking about the uh, the sort of price because the investment is always how much? It's like uh, I don't know. What's the Swedish version of Lion's Den? The show where there's the four investors, and then they you come up with an idea, and, and they they try to invest X amount of money. You have the same version.
0: We have the same. I don't uh, remember the name. Yeah, I'll, I'll come. Anyways, up with it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so so it's it's like if you watch that, then you understand how investment works. I give you half a million, and I want the the less percentage of your company I will get the more sketchy your team is. So if you have a tier one team, they've worked together, they've just shipped the latest battlefield uh, that made $1 billion and they have been working for 15 years together before that. They're family, friends, they, have, they, they know what everybody thinks and everybody loves them in the industry. They will be able to raise an absolutely monstrous round of like, they just started their company and they got 10 million euros off the bat. That's how it works, and then you have a team that you mentioned. It's like they haven't really worked together, and not not everybody is from gaming. They might not even be able to raise a fund. They might, you know, get the, uh, the Swedish government early funding to kind of, tra- you know, get get their beaks wet, work a little bit in some some combinator, and and through that kind of have to grind themselves to a position where where they can. Uh, raise their first fund.
0: But if we don't talk about those extremes, because those are Mm -hmm. extremes, I mean, they're not even on the same scale. So if we take something closer to the same scale, Mm -hmm. do you think there's other factors to evaluate the team except for their experience?
1: Yes, of course. Uh, The second one is you have to understand what the investors are buying, meaning like what is hot right now? You could say, hey, we don't have much experience, but guess what? We will make NFTs with monkey faces. (laughs) <laughs> and um, and, then the, and it's going to be all on the ethereum blockchain or solana and it's going to be web3 and there's going to be a metaverse and you just drop these names and lo and behold you get you're able to raise money because these funds have have their crypto funds that need to put money somewhere and and your monkey face company will get some some oh good my money God. <laughs> yeah. That's so true. but that's how it works yeah. that's how it works because they are buying it right now in okay. a year it might not be the hottest thing but yeah. right now if you have monkey face nfts uh, good luck like yeah. you don't need to have anything else
0: <laughs> just a twitter <laughs> and handle and that's just it <laughs> put them on okay uh, but do you involve investors in these phases like uh, are they when you're pitching to them or working with mm-hmm. them like do they see yeah. your decisions and so forth
1: yeah so you not in pitching phases you can in pitching phases you just show what are the next phases, what are the, well, the results, and, and so forth, kind of like on, on a high level. But then you involve investors as board members, and as you go through your board meetings, you're essentially going through through your roadmap, and they're very much following how it goes and why it's not going according to the plans, because it never goes according to the plans. Uh, but you present them the plans in advance and, and the, the timelines and the exit criterias for different phases. So, so yes, you involve your investors, but you don't involve investors because they do not care.
0: No. Okay. Got it. But now you said something interesting. Mm-hmm. You used the word exit criteria. Mm-hmm. Tell me a bit about those.
1: Yeah. Well, of course, with every phase, you just don't put in like this phase is three months. You They put that this phase is approximately three months. And, and in order to exit this phase and go to the next phase, you have to achieve this. The exit criterias... They can be called exit criteria. They can be called kill gates as well. If you want to be very gamey.
0: Yeah, I like that.
1: Uh, meaning that if you cannot pass this, you will be killed and you go back to square one as a team. So exit criteria are different at different phases. Whether in the in the ideation phase, it means that you are able to sell your idea and concept phase, you are able to move forward through to the prototyping by showing that there is true demand in the market and you have tested your your marketability of, of the idea. You've identified the audience. You've identified the competition. In prototyping phase, you're showing the NPS that it's, it keeps on improving. That that your core game is fun to play, and um, and the players are saying the same thing. Not just your team. Then then the pre-production and everything is is just kind of goes according to that. You agree on the exit criteria early on, whether it is something in the software, a certain amount completed. But usually they're based on metrics. So you know retention metrics, monetization metrics, u- usability metrics. But but these are these are the other uh, criteria, and then. The phase can be prolonged as the team is working towards achieving those metrics. And eventually, uh, in the phase of soft launch, which we do before before the the real launch, that's where most of my games have died, if not all, uh, is when they enter a, a closed, not closed, but a specific market or a few specific markets. And they are just unable to achieve the point where customer acquisition cost is less than the lifetime value of a customer. And that is that is the uh, that is the, uh, the the final formula. And if you are able to achieve that by retaining your players, by having the good monetization hooks, and by having um, high marketability, and through that low customer acquisition cost, you are able to launch your game globally and then start operating
0: it. Nice. Okay. Interesting. That's very concrete. All those phases, actually. So soft launch. That is where your uh, basically most of the games fail. Uh, is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah, most of the yeah. games fail in self launch. That's that's correct. They they, they fail throughout the uh, the process, and that's that's when the process is working properly. Yeah. Uh, with with a lot of a lot of dead games on the way, and and that's where the uh, even you know the best studios are the best ones who are launching the most successful games. Not all of them, but but there are those who are very proud of how many games they kill on their way to make a good one. Like oh, we killed fifteen uh. games until we got this one out. That just shows how how diligent their process is and how high the bar is to to pass through it. And it also shows that they have a lot of ideas and a lot of iterations. So that's that's when you know that the uh, the studio is good at creating something new when they have a lot of good things going on. And then at the same time, uh, most of the successful gaming companies, to be honest, don't aren't just not able to create anything new. And what they do is they just buy games and buy companies and put into their machine of operating. Because what happens is in our type of games, in the free-to-play games and games as a service, there's two different type of talents. There's the one that is very creative and is able to create new games. And then there's a talent that is a totally different type of organization that is a service organization who's able to run, scale, and run games. And what happens with companies that are successful is that they become really good at running, operating, scaling games and they totally forget what it is to build a game. But because they're good at making money from live games, they're able to acquire companies and grow their company through that. So
0: oh, interesting.
1: that's the, uh, the, uh, how the industry is set up.
0: Yeah. So, so really like when you start a game, uh, do you actually start it with the intent that at some point it, l- it will be sold to one of those companies? Like, is that the normal exit uh, strategy?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think the company is set up that way. But that's the reality. Okay, <laughs> there's, it's it's just a, it's it's a reality how things work. Uh, companies get acquired because the further you you go, the closer you move to the top, the more resources and the more equity you need to have to continue marketing and continue growing. And at some point, uh, your early investors who we're talking about will want to. Get their money back, you know, or 10x or not 10x, the the 100x on their initial investment, and at that point it's just a question of of um are there buyers? So, so uh, that's that's how the uh, the industry has been consolidating uh, mm. through, through bigger companies acquiring smaller ones, or IPOs, or or sort of these. Uh, there's actually a, couple, a few Swedish companies that are aggregators, so in, in, they're just bankers who are buying companies and putting them together so that's uh, that's another way yeah. another
0: way of exiting yeah
1: Yeah, another way of exiting everybody becomes part of this big conglomerate yeah. of of uh, of stock entity
0: yeah uh, we're gonna come back to that but i kind of just want to stick on the soft launch a bit more because like what, listening to this whole process it seems like you are so data-driven and mm-hmm. and and you have so many steps for me, it's a mm-hmm. bit of a, I don't know, I, I would have imagined that it wasn't going to be that many games that failed if they got all the way to the soft launch.
1: It, it, it Again, this depends on. So in an ideal case, there's there's many failures. In an ideal case, you have an abundance of ideas and, and many teams working on new games where you have the freedom to kill them. Quite often, though, there is a situation where either you have these franchises that you've invested in, you're, you're sort of a mandated to get this over the uh, how would I say over the goal line and the team just keeps working on that one idea until they get finished or the team or, or the company is small enough where they can't like can't afford even killing it and and, and they kind of have to go through it so so it really depends on the size of the company and the, and the type of organization and the type of franchise they're working with and also when I'm going through it I'm, I'm explaining how our development process works. This is from my experience of making games for 13 years. This is not how I made the first game, not the second, not the third, not the fourth, not the fifth. This is how I'm making my 11th game, pretty much. <laughs> like It's an iteration, and I've added more and more steps due to the failures of the past, because either you win or you learn, and I've been learning a lot. So, so yeah. these, are, these are the steps.
0: Yeah, uh, but, but we still have talked about the fact that the game industry in general are very much more data-driven than many other uh, industries and so forth. So even mm-hmm. though this is your process, I would imagine that most companies have some sort of process that is data-driven. Yeah, yeah,
1: most companies... Yeah pretty much everybody's is, is like the the longer you've been doing this, the more data driven you become. That's how it happens. Yeah. Because the more failures you will occur and then you'll be like, Oh, so we should have a step as we go through it so that we don't fuck up like we did right now when we lost all the investment. So let's add another step. And through that it becomes like a multi, multi, multi step process because there's so many failures that you've noticed only a year or year and a half after you made your mistake.
0: Ah, uh, I see. Got it. Yeah. But um, so I know you also have this uh, podcast and there's blog where mm-hmm. you like look at so many other games. So if yeah. you would look at um games in general that succeed out of the uh, soft launch phase, what would mm-hmm. you like? What have you seen as the common uh, themes on these, or not themes, but like they had these factors in them, and that's why they succeed?
1: Um, it's a good question. So a lot of the time, like it really depends on on the type of Games um, usually games like they compete. Every game competes in a certain type of genre for a certain type of audience. So, so there's there's no particular common nominators of success. But uh, out of the games that that have been able to succeed with relatively small teams compared to existing rivals, those are the games that that have, in my opinion, two important things figured right in the beginning one is marketability so they were able to find their niche. so when they enter their market finally with the game they're actually able to go complete with compete with the cpis and getting a lower cpi than the competition uh because if, that, if that's not the case it doesn't matter what you've done you're dead you're dead on arrival the second part is that they have they are extremely player focused um meaning that they were clearly testing a lot earlier they have the previous experience they know what makes players feel good in this particular genre so as an example um you're in sweden right yes. in stockholm yes okay so candy crush would be a good example then uh the, the great expert from from sweden uh so in in a case of in a case of candy crush such a you know gigantic game like 10 billion in revenue or probably way over it's very hard to compete with it but there's a there was a game launched maybe a year or so ago out of turkey that is doing really well in a genre that is dominated by games like candy crush and And it's done by a smaller team, but they have previous experience of the previous game. And they were really focused on making a game that stands out, making smart design choices where they didn't overspend on trying to win with features. But more like, how can we do the same thing in the most clever way? So, so for example, instead of 3D, they go 2D, uh, just small things and kind of delivering the same experience without spending the same amount of time. But most importantly, they were focusing on that that experience of matching those tiles together and when that small experience that is almost impossible to design it's only through endless iteration and an abundance of experience you're able to make the core the best feeling of them all then you start winning
0: i like that i really like that
1: yeah there's a fallacy to start competing against the big ones with doing everything but at worst quality but you do one thing that is the most important at the best quality and leave the rest out and that's how you start growing
0: Interesting. Yeah, I really like that. So to, to kind of go another direction from that, because I listened to you mm-hmm. in another podcast where you were mm-hmm. talking about Farmwheel and like when they are launching new features, there was something about, I think you mentioned that when they added animals, they were mm-hmm. so excited that it was easy to, um, or that it was so, so successful. But uh, you were arguing that if you have a good platform, then you can do pretty much anything uh, and it will succeed.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's, that's my either win or you learn uh, comment as well. Because, uh, I mean, I've worked on successful games that are just very sticky and there's a big player base and that player base buys everything and they retain really well. So it doesn't really matter what you put in it, you'll get a lot of traction almost all the time. And then you get this fallacy of, of like, well, everything that I do is so good because the players seem to just eat it up. Um, and that's not you, that's the, <laughs> that's the game, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and then it's a fallacy that these players you know, people who work on very successful titles take to other places and say, hey, I was actually on, like when I was working on it, I did this. We added this thing and it was fantastic. People really loved it. Might be, but most likely just people really loved that game. And it doesn't matter whether you add a chicken or dogs or cats or, or or pigs or flying, you know, flying saucers, they would have liked it still. So yeah. it, it, it wasn't really about that.
0: So, so then if we talk about these two different cases, like the turkey-based mm-hmm. company that... Uh, basically do mm-hmm. one thing really well. And then we have these platforms that mm-hmm. can basically do anything and they will eat it up. Like, are we talking about the same types of games? And this is like um, through different parts of their journey or is it different types of games where you have different strategies, like sometimes less is more and sometimes everything goes?
1: Uh, we're talking about different things. Yeah. So we're talking about people who have worked on big live games that they didn't build, but they worked on as they operated because games last for easily a decade. And they came in at some point and they were optimizing that game. And then when these same people move into a building phase of a game, which is a totally different job, but they consider that their learnings from the live phase is applicable. Mostly it isn't, but some elements of course are. Mostly you're just like, you need to understand what happens in the live phase, which is the most time of the development, so that you're building towards that it can be run. But taking... in individual elements out of one game and bringing them to another. Based on the success of those individual elements in a different game is a fallacy that doesn't tend to work.
0: Oh, yeah, I, I think I get that. I was more thinking about like, mm-hmm. so um, we go back to this uh, company from sure, Turkey.
1: Just, you could say Dream Games. Okay. It's called Dream Games. Okay, <laughs> so
0: let's go back to Dream Games. Like, they have this uh-huh. game that are, um, they have a uh-huh. core and they're really good at that. Yes. Like, how long do you think they can stick with that core and when do, do they need to, like, when does that become a platform and when can they add everything?
1: It's becoming a platform. So they found, they, they found the most important part for the players which is just the core experience of of matching them and the balancing of the levels and they focus on that and and through those elements they've been able to scale and as they're scaling now they can afford to add more and more features and start slowly build their game into the similar type of platform as they're competing against so what i meant is like in the market entry phase you don't have to have the laundry list of everything that your competitor has done during its five years of being live. Just come in with one thing that you're doing better, and just even leave the rest out. Yeah. But just focus on that one thing and know what that one thing is that it matters to players. Because a lot of times we come in and we with the one thing that players do not care about. <laughs> but, <laughs> but if you if you really understand that what that one thing is, then focus on that and start growing your niche into a proper market segment by just being really good at that one thing and then adding more things where you're becoming good at
0: as well. Yeah, okay. I think that is a very good summary and like tips to to hold on to. We're soon going to wrap up, but I just want to go back a bit to the more investor and people organization mm-hmm. part of it. So, so one of the things we've been going back and forth a bit about is um, the fact that there are different types of organization, like some are more creative and some are more uh, better for handling a live ga- game. Mm-hmm. I would assume that this is Um, part of the people as well so like do you see I I think in other companies there is a lot like you have the people who want to enter a small company they want to build it a bit and as soon as Mm -hmm. it becomes a real company (laughs) like a big company then they leave exactly because it's not really part of them but I would assume that uh, due to the fact that uh, it feels like a game developer team is very uh, close like uh, do people leave in the same way or do uh, some sort do you change the organization so that the ones who started it can create a new game while others who are more like, like how, how does that work?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So the creators are good at creating, not good at operating. The operators are good at operating, not good at creating. That's the, the rule of thumb. There are unicorns that are good at both. Yeah. I don't know too many, uh, I'll be honest. So what you want to do is you want to have creators always creating and operators always operating. The best way it goes is as you're getting of a phase of a sort of a handover, your team size actually grows as it gets closer to the um, to the live phase. And then as soon as you get to through that global launch, at that point you already have to have the right hand person for the creator. And then the creator gets to launch the game, gets to you know. Raise his hand and said, like, we did it, and takes his or her core team to start something new because they are dying to work on something new because they've been working on this for two, three, you know, usually three years by the time it launches globally. So they want to already start something new. And at the same time, the right-hand person, uh, as well as the team that has been built around that core team, will get more ownership and get a leadership position as they have been sort of shadowing them and now are, are getting to a position where they start operating that and um and those are those are different types of of um, capabilities now when it comes to the programmers the artists designers like it's not that much of a difference but but usually the game leadership needs to change so a person who's a creator uh tends to be more of a design or production focused in the beginning uh but the person that operates has a strong business background like you know if you're not an mba it's unlikely that you'll be a good operator of games. That those are the most mostly the people who are yeah. operating.
0: Okay, interesting. The final thing I just want to touch upon is like the whole investment uh, of a game. Like mm-hmm. I assume because game development takes so so long, so you need like uh, big wallets and you need them early. Uh, like how I don't know how how into you are in other type of investments in in other startups. Like how would you say that investment in in gaming differs from other types of investments?
1: I do both. Um, how is it different? It's more riskier. <laughs> okay. That's that's for sure. So. Much more riskier, meaning that, that there's a there's a chance of, of it failing really badly and that chance is, is at the highest. Uh, with a with platform it's it's so much with with any kind of service it's so much clearer. It's basically you just have to understand where there's a need for this type of a platform and, and executing on a platform is, is is also much more easier than building a game because you're building a service you kind of know what you're trying to build you don't have to test it over and over again like is this fun it's like <laughs> well it's for professionals and they're going to use it for this like as long as it works as long as you get the algorithm or whatever the platform is doing so it's more on there is a tr- there's a need and they have a certain way that they're able to cater to this need and then you invest into it and they can build a team versus in a game you you just don't know so in the end, you're, you're just left with, well, it's a good team and I'm sure this team can scale up and they can do some magic together. So let's invest.
0: Yeah. That puts some more perspective into the whole team uh, question. I didn't think yeah. really uh, thought about that difference before. Yeah. Cool. So, so, I think we're about to wrap up, but I, I usually ask like, is there anything I should have asked you about regarding these uh, topics that we have talked about that I haven't asked you about?
1: About game development? Um,
0: well, game development, decision making, uh, when to go and when to let go, investments. Yeah, we, 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 have been <laughs> yeah, we we've been all over the place. Yeah, we've
1: been all over the place. I don't know. Uh, I think you've asked a lot of good questions. You know, in an hour, it's it's quite hard to cover everything in an hour. Um, yeah, I think we covered most mostly. Usually, people who are listening to this will will have the questions, and then they will ask those. So. So, I think.
0: Uh, Exactly. So, you will get a lot of emails after this. I'm sorry. No,
1: no, well, I just don't reply. So, that's, (laughs) I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) Or if they email me, then I can uh, gather all the questions and then we can do another session. Yeah,
1: yeah, of course. Of course. But uh, game development is is fun, Uh, it's uh, very stressful, it's just like any software development project, but the risk of failure is a lot larger than with any other software development project.
0: Yeah, I, I can really imagine that. And
1: people are very opinionated. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: The game development teams are very, very opinionated. Yeah.
0: But I, I, I think like in any time where you have a lot of opinions, it's always nice to work in a place where you have a lot of data. Because at least for me, I don't know if it mm-hmm. works with games, but at least for me, um, I work mm-hmm. with digital marketing and data within that. And every time there is like, oh, I think this, I'm like, oh, but have you seen the numbers? Are you sure you think that still? Like, mm-hmm. can you do that winning games as well? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And that's that's why I need to get into the numbers really fast. And that's why there's so many phases where we test. But this is, the, again, this was just me explaining after, you know, multiple failures, how the process is working at the moment. Yeah. And it will evolve because it's never perfect. Yeah. And um, uh, with every failure, it will become better. Yeah. <laughs> so, but nevertheless, most of the companies that I talk to have much, more, much less steps and much higher chance of failing and and most of the game teams are very afraid to show what they're working on until they think it's ready so the uh you know a good game team is the one that is not afraid to show what they're working on
0: Mm -hmm. because that
1: means they're open for feedback and then those who are not well they tend to have a high risk of failure
0: but I think we can actually wrap up with that because that is a good tip as well. And I think that this goes for everything, mm-hmm. like share your work, be open to feedback, be data-driven, measure from the beginning, like it all fits in there. Whatever you want to do to succeed, that is the elements you need.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Well, it was great to meet you, Mishka. Uh, I so enjoyed uh, talking it to you this hour. I learned so much. Uh, I'm going to go back and I'm going to actually try to draw up this process for what we are doing and see what I can learn from this. So... Uh, I'll see if that becomes a blog post or something. Thank you. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Thanks for listening in to our podcast, Winning in the Nordics, presented by AppsFlyer. You know where to find us. Subscribe
1: and leave us a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, and all good
0: podcast apps.